Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We ask you to be with us today, uh, that you would make us attentive and thinking and appreciative of what you've done for us in Christ. And that this wasn't plan B to send Jesus to the cross. It's always been your plan, and you have demonstrated that through the types and shadows that we see in the Old Testament. We pray that you would bring those out uh, a little bit more clearly for us today as we see the beauty of Jesus, whom we serve, whom we long to serve better. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We are in Leviticus chapter 24. And we, we um, last couple of weeks, have studied the, um, the, the Israelite calendar. There were the, the annual feasts that they did, um, seven feasts that we discussed, and they were big deals. They were highly celebrated, anticipated events, lots of food, little work, some joyful, some mournful but uh, called to be together and thankful. And so they, these are these huge spiritual highs during the year. And today, we come to a chapter that's right on the heels of these annual feasts that start with the daily duty of supplying oil for the lamps and bread for the table in the tabernacle. And it's you go from these punctuated celebratory annual events to uh, this, this is what we do every day, this is what we do weekly. Why do you think he goes directly here? Let me, let me read through verses 1 through 9, chapter 24, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring your pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Verse 5, you shall take the fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. And we'll stop there. Why go into this right after these huge um, spiritual high mountaintop kind of festivals that we have once a year, why go here? What do you think? This seems like a portion of scripture that honors God and it honors God every day. Like the lamps never burn out, the bread is always there. Yeah, we're coming off of 
reverence for holy things. All of those festivals are dealing with the holy and reverencing it once a year in certain ways. And you, and you come to it here, a daily reverence that's there, a weekly reverence that's there in the case of the, of the bread. Why else? Why else do you think? There isn't a, like one answer here. I mean, I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on this. Why else do you think he would go here? Provision. Provision? Daily provision? There's a... Go ahead. Covenant relationship between the Lord and His people that He will always be their God regardless. And it's a daily thing? Go ahead. It's also a foreshadow for Jesus. Always a safe answer in Sunday school. He's the light of the world. Yeah. Yeah, and we talked a lot about that when we were in Exodus, didn't we? We went over the lamp and the bread. The light there in the darkness, because it was from evening to morning that they lit it. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. All those provision ideas are there, certainly. And even, the more importantly for today, the presence idea is there. The, the lamp of His presence. It's before the Holy of Holies. And so there's this... This, the furniture that's in the holy place is all before the presence of God. The table of His presence, you know, the, it's called the bread of the presence, is you know, the way it's described. So there's this daily reminder of the presence of God. Um, we saw a little bit of this in the last chapter, this nod to don't forget the daily stuff even though you've got the yearly things going on, right? Mm-hmm. And now we have this chapter beginning with this same idea. It's so easy to look toward the next big thing. To be anticipating, oh, I can't wait till 364 days till Christmas. You know, that we're always looking forward to the next thing that we forget the beauty, the provision, the grace, and the thankfulness that's needed for today, our daily bread. And so I think that um, I think that that's what's going on here is this call back to remember. What is, uh, um, what is happening daily. Um, all right. Another thought on this, some of the smart guys uh, point us to, is that in chapter 23, it describes the festival of booths. Let me be clear about the booths. And the festival of weeks, where Israelite males were to bring offerings of the harvest produce to the tabernacle. And so this is kind of a continuation of, okay, now the stuff's brought in, what do you do with it? So here's this regular use of what's been brought in uh, uh, on those occasions. All right. Verses 1 through 4 talk about the lighting of the lamps. And we saw this same command in Exodus 27. Do you remember what the lampstand was shaped like? Remember this? Tree. It was a tree. There was a, a trunk. There were six branches off the trunk. And at the top of the trunk and off the end of each of the remaining six branches, there were lamps. And in each lamp was a place for a wick and oil. And so they were there to, to provide oil for the lamps. And they were to trim the lamps at night and have them burning throughout the night to light the holy place. Um, what was the oil to be like? How is it described here? And what does that mean? What does that mean? Pure oil. Pure oil. What would an impure oil look like? It would burn black. It would burn black. Okay. Smoky. It's kind of got some impurities in it that may get a little nasty. Uh, 
this is a very expensive oil. And the way that it's made, the smart folks tell us, is that it's crushed gently. The, each olive is crushed gently to get the oil out, and no impurities are allowed. It's a pure, clean, no remnant stuff. The normal way, the more economic way to make uh, oil here is to get these big presses and put a bunch of olives in it and go, you know, industrial on it and just crush it and crush it. And if stuff gets in, it gets in, you know, that, that kind of thing. So it's very economic to do it that way. Not this. It's very personalized. It's very slow and tedious. And it's oil fit for a king, right? That's the idea. It's oil fit for a king. Um, all right. What did this light represent to them? What did the light represent to them? We already mentioned it. Yeah, His presence is there. God's presence is light. That's the idea. And they were to remember that and reverence that by this eternal duty of the priesthood and the eternal duty of the people. If you remember, they were to bring the oil and the priests were to use it to keep the lamp lit. Um, okay. It's a daily service. The priests were to keep it burning continually to acknowledge His constant presence and to show their willingness to serve Him always. So it's a two-way street. God's presence was there in the covenant, providing them light, and they were showing and demonstrating their willingness to serve Him continually by trimming the lamp. All right, the bread of the presence. It's the same principle here. The, the, the bread, placing the bread on the golden table, uh, shows again His continual presence and their willingness to serve Him continually. So He received service from them. All right. What's the bread? The bread was flat bread. Remember, we talked about this before. It's flat bread. And it's huge bread. The bread, apparently, according to the smart folks, uh, weighs about five, a little over five and a half pounds of bread. That's a lot of bread. And it's, there's 12 of them. I don't know if it's a fruitcake or not. Let's hope not. Uh, it's just flat bread. It's stripped down. No, yeah. <laughs> That's more of an occultic ritual there with the fruitcake. Um, flat bread, of course, is, uh, is without leaven. So you have uh, this, this idea of, of, again, the presence of leaven would uh, damage it or, or be impure. Um, and they stack it up. Now, remember, the table had other stuff on it, and it was a small table, three feet by one and a half feet, I think is the dimension. There's other stuff on the table, and so they had to stack it up, and because it was flat, it was able to do this, and they stacked it up six and six, you know, kind of a thing, and there was something with it. Do you remember? What, what did they put on it? Frankincense. Why would you put frankincense? What is frankincense? I don't think so. It's a refined oil? A fine oil? Pure oil, but it had some scent stuff in it, right? It's a smelly stuff. Franken, yeah, it's good. Again, yes, we'll get to look to in a minute. 
Frankincense was a, an aromatic kind of oil that they would also put on the altar sometimes. So some people thought that they, when it says put it on the loaves, they may have poured it on top of the pile, or they may have put it to the side and kept it, uh, kept it there ready to, 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 uh, to put on the altar for, the scent, uh, for incense. Um, since there were 12 loaves, and this frankincense is described as a memorial portion. The idea is that it requests, it's requesting that the Lord remember the offeror in favor. And since there were 12 loaves, it's requesting that the Lord remember each of the 12 tribes with favor. Um, and you see this as it's described as a covenant forever, or some of the other translations have it as a lasting covenant. Bread, if you remember, is a, is a covenant sign in ancient culture because covenants were ratified with a meal, and bread is kind of a staple part of a meal. So again, you have this weekly ratification, remembrance of the covenant of God that's going on. And in this case, the priests ate the bread on the people's behalf as part of that renewal, that remembrance of the covenant. And they confirmed the covenant every time they did so. It was done weekly. What does this tell you? about the needs of God. In other cultures, well, when we went to, down to Mexico, they had uh, in these mud huts out in the mountains, they would have these little statuettes of uh, Mother Mary, right? And they would bring fruit and stuff every day to Mother Mary. Now this is, of course, a, a knockoff, uh, a trademark violation of pagan practices. Uh, that they would put food at the foot of their God every day. Why? Why would they do that? Maybe the God needed it. The God got hungry. And so that's the way the God ate, because this God was so powerful that his poor servant needed to put food at its feet so that it would have food, or the God, I guess, would starve or get brittle. or I don't know. But the point is, the God was needy. What is it demonstrating to us that this was done weekly, this bread put on the table? He only needs to eat once a week. He only needs to eat once a week. No. It was. We'll give you a we'll give you a participation certificate on that one. Everybody wins. Uh, it's like knocker ball. Everybody gets on the ground and gets a certificate. Okay, so what does it mean? What does it mean for him to have this weekly? Who does that benefit? It's more of a remembrance that, that people have to do to honor God. Because they, they themselves are eating it in, in his presence. They're the ones eating it. You have this, you have this communion going on with, with, with God. And this. It's a communion that's going on with God. They're the ones doing it, bringing it, putting it at the table. They're the ones sort of benefiting, the priests are, on behalf of the people, benefiting from the bread of His presence. This is, a, this is a, a sign, a remembrance, it's not necessary for God to eat. God doesn't need anything. Um, I, I still go back to Nathaniel doing Shailen, you know, self-sufficiency, the fire that was in the bush was not like those fires of other bushes. I mean, he went on, Nathaniel went on for like 30 minutes on this beginning intro to the... It's a good song. It's a great song. But it's God's self-sufficiency. He doesn't need anything. 
He doesn't need food. He doesn't need the bread. But it's a remembrance, a, a duty, a faithful representation of that covenant every week that they're doing. God didn't actually need the food. He's self-sufficient. Uh, one of the smart guys says, its purpose was display, not consumption. And it's indicated by the fact that it is replaced weekly, not daily, as elsewhere in the ancient Near East. Only the priests could eat the most holy offerings. Uh, and it's thought that they ate the bread uh, after the new loaves are brought in every week. So they, they're eating week-old bread, which sounds kind of weird to us. We think that should be at the, you know, the, the, the rainbow bread factory out here. That, but no, that type of bread they make, even now, matz, matzah, whatever, matzah, whatever, I don't know, some kind of Jewish bread they have now, lasts, it lasts a long time. And so a week, a week of that stuff is probably going to be okay. Don't feel bad for the priests having to eat week-old bread. It was, it's okay. So they would, they would not eat it in such a way as the table was ever empty, is the idea. They would wait until the fresh bread came in, and they would take uh, the stuff that was from the previous week. If the lamp is burning and the bread is on the table, somebody's home, right? This is a nod to a confirmation of he's with us. I will be in their midst. That, that, this is the sign of that. One of them. This is a regular remembrance of that. The continual actions here were a clear demonstration of the continual commitment of Israel to serve Yahweh with the best ingredients. And then we get confronted with a contrast. Look at verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all of the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good for life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses." Now, Leviticus is a book of law, and there are two places where there's a narrative in the book. 
here, and then you have the, the roasting of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10. This is the other narrative. Why put it here? Why put it right here? Coming off the feast, coming off of daily reverence, why put this story here? Contrast to daily reverence. His was irreverence. His was irreverence. So this is the contrast to daily reverence. Some have argued that it, it fits with the theme of showing reverence on the feasts and the daily reverence that we saw in 1 through 9. Others have said, well, that's probably some of that, but it could also be that this is just the time and place that this event happened while this part of the law was being given. So it might be a, a, a time frame issue as well as fitting the theme. But whatever the reason, we're dealing with a thorny issue here. How, if this were an Israelite, a native person, this probably wouldn't have made the text because they knew what to do with that. You blaspheme, you're an Israelite, you're to honor God, we take you outside the camp. Not an issue. What's the issue here? He's not a native. He's not a native. Why? He's mixed ethnicity. He walked like an Egyptian. He had to go there. The 80s just will not leave us. Thankfully so. All right. He had uh, an Egyptian as a father and an Israelite for a mother. He's not considered to be native-born. Um, so that puts him in a weird category. How does the law against blasphemy apply to a resident alien living among the Israelites? That's ultimately the conclusion that he comes to, right? What happened here? How do we get here? They took him into custody first for what? What is he doing? What did he do? He got in a fight and he blasphemed the Lord and cursed. Do we know what he said? No. Doesn't Do we know his name? No. Isn't that curious? We know his mother's name, but he blasphemes the name, and his name is never mentioned. We just know his mother's name, who's the Israelite. Isn't that curious? And so you have this guy who in some way... It says, blaspheme the name and cursed. So, what's in a name? What is it talking about? How would this have happened, do you think? What, what would this look like? What would he have done? The idea here is not that he just used Yahweh as a curse word, which would be bad enough. But the idea here is that he demeaned the God of Israel he, and, and cursed, it says. He's not worth it. He's common and profaned the name of Yahweh. And we know from our studies before that the name of God, or the, any the names in general, are sig, uh, significant in that they represent the essence of the person. That's the idea in, that, in the culture. We use it today. He dragged my name through the mud. right? We, we have the same idea. And that's what's going on here. Not only did he possibly use the name of God as a curse word, but he's also demeaning the king. And what do we call that? 
to flaunt and demean the king. We call it treason. And in any culture, if you defy the king, that's considered treason. And that's what's going on here. This is an extreme thing for this guy to do in the middle of Israel. And he may have thought he was safe to do it because he wasn't native. We don't know. So you have a fight between two guys, and one of them uses the name blasphemously. Um, and, they, and you've said it already, the man uh, was kind of held in custody until they knew exactly what to do. Now that's a grace, right? That's kind of a gracious action. This is, and, and why do you think they would fear to go ahead and act on this? Foreign policy. Foreign policy. <laughs> we don't want to pick yet another war with those Egyptians. Because of the other narrative. Because of the other narrative. If they did it wrong... If they took innocent blood, when they may have acted too far, taken it too far on someone who wasn't native, who wasn't in necessarily in covenant with Yahweh, innocent blood would be on their hands, and that would have resulted in their it could have resulted in their stoning. So they were wise to hold back. I'm sure they're all outraged by this, but they were wise to hold back and not exact justice until they sought wisdom from the Lord. What a great principle to live by. So, what did the Lord tell them to do with this guy? Three things. Take him outside the camp. camp. Why outside the camp? Wouldn't it make more sense to do it in the midst of everybody right there in the camp? Because it's cutting off. It's cutting off. There's that idea of, of, uh, of the penalty that we've seen before, either send them out to the wilderness or execution. Cutting off. What happens ritually? When people are around a dead body, they're unclean. And that sometimes would happen, you know, by necessity because of a death in the family and those kinds of things. But here it would be an intentional putting a dead body in the midst of the camp, and the camp was to remain pure, right? So why would we do that? This is, we take it outside the camp to, to maintain ritual purity, also as a clear symbol that, uh, that this guy is defiled, and we don't want him in the midst of the camp. What's next? What do they do? This is an odd thing they're doing. They call the witnesses and do what? They lay hands on him. Are they praying for him? They cast out the demon. What are they doing here? It seems like it's it's like if you're going to put your hand on this guy's head who's about to die, you better really be telling the truth that he said what he said. There's a there's a call to true testimony here, possibly. It mirrors the putting of the well, now yeah. mirrors the putting the sin on the goat. Why would that be necessary? Do you think? Did they do anything wrong? It could show how uh, how how wrong the the sin of blaspheming God's name. All they heard, even are then drawn into the. They're defiled by hearing it. Good point. So if they're defiled by hearing it, if they're drawn into his sin because they were there to witness it, the placing of the hand on the guilty party says, I'm not guilty, he is. Right? This, and, that, and you see this in the way God addresses it. It's on his own head. He's guilty. The one who blasphemes the name is guilty on his own head. And so you see them, by symbol, uh, 
first of all, it's, it's a first step in condemning him. We are the witnesses we condemn him. So that's true. Then it's also any guilt we may have from hearing it, any impurity we may have from hearing, since it's a blasphemous statement, we, we transfer it to the, to the guilty party. What do they do next? They stone him. Who does it? Everybody. Now, practically, uh, you got over two million people in the camp. Practically, what probably happened was that there were men who were appointed to represent the camp to do this, uh, so that they're you know doing it uh, representatively. But uh, even even so, um, it, it is it is done by the camp. All right. Here's, here's something interesting. Look at verse 15. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And that's directed in verse 16 to the sojourner as well as the native. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. What a presumptive statement. What do you mean, his God? He's not one of us. He's an alien. Mm -hmm. What statement is that making to Israel? And what statement is that making to the countries around, the cultures around? There's only one God. There's only one God, and he's your God too. Right? And you have a duty, even though you're not within or a part of Israel, you have a duty, duty to honor him as well. What a massive statement. What an eschatological statement. He's your God too. Justice was, be, was to be applied equally to all, at least within Israel's borders, including the resident alien. He's God over all peoples, not just Israel, and should be revealed, uh, revered. Look at the principles of justice that we see here. Now, um, the smart guys tell us that this is called a, a chiasm. And you see it in verse 17. It says it's dealing with killing of a person. Then the next verse is killing of an animal. And then you have this injuring of a person and all these things that we like to really think through whenever somebody offends us. And then it goes back to killing of an animal and killing of a person. And we know in a chiastic structure, the thing in the middle is drawing out probably the, the significant point. Um, it starts with killing the person because you kill the person, you die. Why is that? We're all made in the image of God. There's a special value to that image. And so he starts with this. And then the killing of an animal is property. So you restore it, and there's Levitical law on that. And then he goes into this thing. 19 through 20. What do we do with this? If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. That sounds incredibly vengeful. I mean, if you hit me in the jaw and break my jaw, the appropriate punishment is to tie you down to a chair and let me beat you on the jaw till it's broken. Is that what we're saying? 
Yeah. Is it you that gets to break the job who broke you, or is it administered by officials? Isn't that curious? Are we talking about public justice here or individual retribution? Isn't that the point that Jesus was dealing with in Matthew 5? You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, is Jesus saying, forget Leviticus? This law is bad. We have a textual variant here. We probably shouldn't pay attention to this. No. What he's saying is, this law was intended for a certain purpose, and people are now interpreting it as a, as a way to have ind, uh, individual vengeance. And that's not what it's ever intended to be. What this is is a public statement of how the government should apply justice. It should mete it out fairly. When you have a situation like this, you lose an eye, in a tribal culture, or in Chicago apparently, you, you need to have something in place that limits the, the drive toward vengeance. Vengeance has got to, oh, he, I'll take both his eyes. Or I'll go bomb his children. How are you to handle public justice? Um, it's to be meted out fairly. Make the punishment fit the crime. That's what's going on here. Not that we do it individually, but that the government should be uh, fairly meeting out justice and righteousness. So there's that thing of don't overdo vengeance, that the, the, the public government should be handling that rightly. But they had swung all over here to, hey, I can take care of this because it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I demand some some compensation here to get out my anger. That's not what Jesus says. That's not it at all. In our personal relationships, what law are we to live by? The law of love and forgiveness, right? That's how we're to handle interpersonally. Governments are to mete out justice rightly, reflecting the image of God in His justice. We are to handle these things in love and forgiveness, reflecting God in His mercy. That's what Jesus draws out in Matthew 5. And it was never intended to be um, a platform uh, for revenge. Nor is it a platform for not defending yourself. That's true, too. That's true, too. And you see that other places in Leviticus where self-defense is there. The other thing it's not a platform for is for governments to go squishy. Right? Squishy. Where, oh, well that would be vengeful if we, as a government, called somebody an actual felon. That would be squishy for us, uh, that would be too vengeful for us if we, as a government, enforced right laws. And enforced uh, penalties that fit the crime. We've got to show love and forgiveness. And all, Well, that's not your job, government. Your job is to mete out justice. Individually, we have the law of Christ, of love, and, and, and as a government, it bears the sword to punish the evil do doer. That's the way God has set it up. And both reflect His nature. Right? And so for a government to swing the other way and to be squishy does not rightly reflect God's nature. For us to swing the other way and exact personal vengeance does not reflect God's nature. We each have a role to play. All right. And the third thing here 
is that the law applied equally to everyone, whether a resident, alien, or native citizen. The idea also is rich or poor, slave or free. That's curious. I've heard that somewhere before. The law wasn't gamed depending on your social class, political chattering, or otherwise. This was a statement of the Lord's love for the resident alien, because if the justice applied, the mercy applied to the resident alien as well, right? It was to apply to everyone within the borders of Israel. There were no exceptions. There was no diplomatic immunity. I'll just leave that with you. They were to treat them with the same justice that that the um, Israelites uh, were under. And we see in uh, at the end of the chapter, verse 22, that they obey the instruction that they sought from the Lord at the beginning. All right, what do we do to this? What are we going to do with this? It's real easy. We said this earlier. It's real easy to kind of look at the next big thing. It's real easy to kind of hope for the next big event that's going to be fulfilling or, or really get me emotionally jazzed about Jesus or I can't wait till the Together for the Gospel Conference or whatever annual event happens that we so uh, esteem in our culture uh, of uh, Reformed Christianity and otherwise. But this passage pulls us back to the sacred of the mundane. Every day is sacred before God. Daily faithfulness is what we're pointed to here. Because regardless of who was crowned king, regardless of the fight that they had with their wife that morning, regardless of uh, what the storehouses look like, they were to go to that tabernacle, trim the lamps, and put out the bread. Like clockwork. They were daily required to do that. Regardless of what was going on outside the tabernacle, we made sure this got done. It's a sign of faithfulness, daily faithfulness. They um, were responsible for setting aside time to remember the Lord's presence and His favor in their lives. Failure to do so leads to a hardened heart. Ultimately, such a heart may easily curse the name and person of God, whether in speech or through chronic disobedience. Turn to Hebrews 10. I got to tell you, I am loving the fact that as we go through Hebrews on Wednesday, it feeds, I don't know which one comes first, chicken or the egg on this one, but somehow or another they're related in Leviticus on Sunday morning. Look at, look at Ephesians, uh, Ephesians. Slip of the tongue. Hebrews 10. Starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God who has, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people." It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of a living God. We have here a discussion by the writer of Hebrews, Apollos, of who is an apostate. What? Moses wrote them both. That's very interesting. How, how is... Let's get back to the real issue here that Apollos did write. How is the apostasy described here? What are the three things that he draws out in verse 29 of what this apostate looks like? Spurn the Son of God. Other translations say trampled. The idea is trample under feet, underfoot, under feet. The Son of God. What does that mean? Kind of a desecration, you know? You walk on something. Especially in the Eastern cultures, it's. The whole shoe fetish thing. I don't know what they got with, with that. Throw shoes at everybody all the time. Yeah. That's a, it's, a, it's a dishonoring. The souls are considered, the souls of your feet are considered unclean and filthy. So if the sole of your foot is unclean and filthy, and the image here is one who tramples on, steps on, spurns, is the way the ESV translates it, the Son of God, it's to say he's worthless. It's to blaspheme him. Right? Um, what's the second thing? Profane the blood of the covenant. Man, I wish that last phrase weren't in there. <laughs> Profane the blood of the covenant. Let's start there. What does that mean? How is a covenant made in ancient times? What is it? How is it made? You cut some stuff in half, there's lots of blood, right? That's Old and New Testament. Yes? Profaned could mean make common or regard as unholy. Regarding the blood as unholy would be to despise the work of Christ. Not only trampling Him underfoot, but we're despising even what He's done. The basis by which we'd be rectify, uh, reconciled with God. By whom He was sanctified? What does that mean? Is He saying... That those who are sanctified by the blood of Christ can profane the blood of the covenant in such a way as to be made no longer in the covenant and subject to judgment. Is that what he's saying? Okay. It's the same as... Uh, to me, it's the same as, 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 uh, as back in Leviticus, that whether you're a sojourner or a native, whether you're in his blessing or out of his blessing, a Christian or non-Christian, he's still your God. That's exactly it. The idea that we saw in Leviticus was profane his God applied to the sojourner as well as the native. Everybody is in relationship to God in one of two ways. Either you serve him as king or you're in rebellion against him as your king. Either way, he's your king. And this blood purchased the world. This blood that Christ spilled purchased his rights in kingship. Some issues there, but 
purchased his rights and kingship over creation, and he's redeeming it. You're either part of the redemption or you're part of the pruning. And so when it says that he's spurning, that, he's, that he is profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, the idea, it's the same idea there you had the false prophets who uh, deny the Lord who bought them, that same phrase there. It's the same idea here. As we saw the resident alien in Israel, he's king over everyone. Then it says, outrage the spirit of grace. What an ironic contrast. Outrage the spirit of grace. That outraging is an arrogant rejection of. And this is the agent of the Trinity, the person of the Trinity, whose uh, job, I guess, for lack of a better word, brings reconciliation of God to man and, and meets out the grace of Christ to those who trust in Him. And here it shows it being arrogantly rejected. And this is a specifically anti-Christian position. How does this begin? How does someone get to this point? How does this begin? Verse 26. How does it, what does it say? One sinning deliberately. Sinning deliberately. Chronically ignoring the sacred of the mundane. Right? It's not, oh no, I accidentally fell into this big moment. It's chronically ignoring the sacred of the mundane. Not trimming the lamp, not setting out the bread, not having His presence, reminder of who He is, what He's done, His favor that He's blessed us with in Christ. Chronically ignoring that, spurning that, I'd rather do this than, than this. There's a hardening that sets in. There's a slow, um, consistent hardening that sets in. It's been said, and nobody knows who said it, but they always quote it, Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Be mindful of the mundane. Be faithful in the day-to-day. In all of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's recorded that Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He denies himself. He puts down his own desires. He takes up his cross. absolutely submits to the authority of someone else. And follow me, just like Jesus did. We're no greater than him. He was faithful in the mundane, as well as the greatest test any human being has ever faced. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink the mundane, do all to the glory of God. And Colossians 3 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Trim the lamp and bask in its light daily. Prepare and eat the bread weekly. We strive to honor the name in word and deed, displaying our thanks by what we do. Not earning salvation but displaying our thanks, displaying our honor of the name by what we do. Any comments or questions? I know we ran a little long. Not too long. Okay. Let's, um, let's pray. Some of you have puzzled looks. Is there, is there another question? All right. I'll, I'll pray.
Father, thank you for the warnings in Scripture. Thank you that they are to cause us to carefully examine what we're doing with our lives daily. Thank you for the comfort in knowing that if the warning shocks me, I'm still being convicted by your Spirit. I I pray, Father, that each of us has a reverence for each and every day as a gift. Regardless of what's swirling around us, there is that faithful duty to be mindful of your presence, to seek out your face in Scripture, in prayer, in breaking of bread together, in the ordinary means of grace that are given to us as a covenant gift by you to draw us in again and again to the beauty and the presence of Jesus so that we realize the absolute vanity of any other call. He is worth everything. And then everything else are worthless trinkets. So we pray that you would continue to stir up our hearts daily to be faithful in the mundane things, that we would not grow cold, that we would not prove ourselves to have never been in Christ to begin with by our sin. Convict us quickly, convict us decisively, bring us to repentance, and bring us to thankfulness, both before you and with each other. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, guys, for coming.